At the outset of the COVID-19 crisis here in the United States, there were major questions and concerns about how the pandemic would affect communities of color. Having suffered centuries of discrimination, these communities, especially African-American communities, were expected and indeed have borne the brunt of the devastating death toll that the crisis continues to have in our country. As researchers at the Greenlining Institute, an organization that is committed to rectifying the historic inequalities that redlining created in this country, reported last year, investigations into the impact of the COVID-19 crisis on the nation's African-American communities shows that in states where Black communities make up only a relative small portion of the population, nearly half if not a majority of all COVID-19 deaths are members of the black community. While some are tempted to attribute these devastating numbers to lifestyle choices, decades of discriminatory policies are the real culprit. Indeed, studies like those conducted under the guidance of Dr. Dwight Mullen here in Asheville show a clear link between the racial discriminatory policies like redlining and the health disparities that are so glaring in the midst of this public health crisis. The impact of such policies, as the researchers at the Greenlining Institute report, have compounded for generations and have put Black people at a higher risk of chronic conditions that make them more vulnerable to the negative impact of the COVID crisis. In short, the disease is not an equal opportunity virus and is shining a spotlight on our nation's pandemic of inequality. As we look ahead, Marcus and I wonder, how might our responses to the questions of who are we and who do we wish our desire to be seek to ensure that these glaring health disparities can be erased? Join us today for a conversation about the COVID-19 crisis and its impact on Black America. Welcome back to another episode of the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters. And I'm Marcus Harvey. As always, we like to take a moment to thank you all in the audience for sharing this time with us. Um, it, it is always wonderful to know that you're there. Marcus, I continue to get really good feedback from, mm-hmm. from folks about the conversations that we've been having. I, I, I have to say this at the outset, that we continue to ask those framing questions about mm-hmm. who are we, who do we wish to be? And we've been doing that so much, I'm, I was quite sure that people have to get t- are getting tired of hearing us go back to them. But I'm I'm surprised that people are still saying, okay, these questions are so, so very relevant. We appreciate you all for, you know, putting them out there and, and, and essentially forcing us to think about them. Yeah, and it seems to me that the deeper our conversations on this show get, uh, the more feedback we get from from our audience. <laughs> and you know, the, these framing questions, I think we've we've noted this on prior shows, these framing these these framing questions aren't going anywhere. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're, they are uh, they're now perhaps more than ever in the country than any prior point in the country's history. These questions are um, per- very persistently asserting themselves um, locally at the state level and nationally in mm-hmm. ways that I don't think uh, we can really ignore anymore. And so, um, you know, I, I think we, we're as, as a nation, um, 
we really don't have much of a choice but to deal with these. Well, well we always have a choice, but right. um, I think it's very clear now what the consequences may what would likely be if we chose not to deal with these framing questions. And, you know, Marcus, that uh, that show that we did um, in response to our we did a reflect essentially a reflection show in response to uh, January 6th. And what transpired in the nation's capital, I, you know, again, I want to thank our audience uh, for being so engaged in that conversation. I have gotten a lot of feedback. I've received a lot of feedback from that show. I think that you have as well. One friend who is a regular um, listener in the audience who's there all the time uh, listening to these shows um, sent me a text message and said, you know, I really believe that this is the best one that you all have done. Um, mm-hmm. The reflect, really? and it was, yeah. And then um, I got some messages through LinkedIn, uh, through some of our social media platforms about how engaging that conversation was just between the two of us. But I'm glad that you all in the audience found a way to kind of connect with that. But, you know, Marcus, we we talked about um, this idea of unity, too. You know, people mm-hmm. are using this issue. I mean, you you were brilliantly, uh, as, as usual, you went into this brilliant discussion about the, the, the issue of tolerance and is that the right uh, um, is that the right approach for us to be taking? We talked a little bit about unity too, and is, is unity this? Is it this elusive thing that we can never really get to? And I have really been thinking about that, and I'm wondering if we could maybe, you know, change that, um, change um, that that language a little bit to think more about a unity of purpose. Can we find unity of purpose? Um, would that change up this kind of elusive idea of everybody being completely and totally unified and on the same page, which has never really happened? Mm-hmm. So, but can we can we be unified in purpose? Well, I mean, I, I think even before we get to a place um, defined by a unity of purpose, I think we have to go back to something that we discussed um, on a much earlier show, having to do with the necessity and the importance and the value of sharing our stories, mm-hmm. right? Sharing our respective stories um, as, as, as individuals, as communities that represent different historical backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds, uh, different economic backgrounds, different political backgrounds, etc. Um, I don't know how you get to anything that approximates um, a sense of, of unified purpose uh, if you have not first shared um, stories, both as individuals, as communities, because I think what the sharing of story does is it it again it creates an it creates an empathic environment right where you can uh, begin to um, traverse the bridges of difference right that seem to separate us um, through story mm-hmm. right so in other words the story that you share with me connects me to you and vice versa mm-hmm. so I think that has to take place before we can have any serious conversations or make any serious moves toward a unity of purpose. Mm-hmm. And we have to be willing to listen, Marcus, uh, to, to be willing to hear those stories, uh, mm-hmm. the stories of other people. Um, you know, interesting, you know, Lee, Marcus, th- today's show, we're, we're going to be talking about COVID and, ex- and specifically about the COVID crisis and how it has impacted the African-American community. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we talked about that when we came back, you know, 
the audience, you all will remember we were on hiatus for a while because mm-hmm. COVID forced us to be on hiatus until mm-hmm. we could find a way to kind of reconnect with each other and reconnect with you all. Here we are, Marcus, we're still kind of in our own locations. You're still sitting yeah. in your office yeah. at home. Um, I happen to be out of town right now recording the show, um, but you know, still uh, it, you know, not in the studio. Mm-hmm. But when we came back to that first show, we, we talked about COVID. And, and the COVID crisis and the fact that it had forced us to go on hiatus. Um, you know, both you and I being professors at the university, it forced us to kind of re uh, reimagine how we uh, deliver our classes, um, which mm-hmm. was something of a challenge. Um, and we, in that conversation, did say that the COVID crisis has revealed all of these glaring disparities that exist in our society. Um, we also talked about this is a time for us to go back to those framing questions then. Who are we and who do we want to be? Is this these disparities that we're seeing, especially in minority communities, is this is this the America that we really want? Is this who we want to be as a community and as a society? Yeah, and again, I would say, um, I, I think that the the pandemic has, I wouldn't say that it has revealed anything, but it has now made it impossible to ignore, right, the disparities that have been extant um, in American society for um, for decades, if not if not much longer. And so, yeah, it it it's the the pandemic has put us in a position where we can no longer ex, um, ignore the historical injustices that have given rise to the disparities that um, are so uh, much. To the fore now, um, and again, I, I think as you just said, brother, the, the the pandemic is also forcing upon us these framing questions. Mm-hmm. What has the pandemic, what has the COVID crisis revealed about who we really imagine ourselves to be as a country, right? right? Um, mm-hmm. And and how are we going to wrestle with that? Mm-hmm. Are we going to wrestle with that as a nation, or? Are we not going to wrestle with it? Are we going to retreat from these questions and retreat back into um, comfortable mythologies mm-hmm. about um, what America is, um, what American democracy is all about, um, about uh, you know America being a so-called post-racial society, mm-hmm. right? Is that what we're going to do? Mm-hmm. Or are we going to seize upon this mo- moment as an opportunity perhaps to evolve or to mm-hmm. begin to really evolve uh, socially and politically um, in this country, time well, will tell. I certainly hope, Marcus, that it will be the latter. That we'll we'll yeah. we'll take this opportunity to begin to kind of to to rethink who we are and and what we want to be as a nation and as a country, and begin to kind of dr- address some of these issues. You know, we hear the word equity a lot um, in, in in a lot of the conversations about uh, as we move forward. That's a topic for us to come back to and talk. I listened to that show, Marcus, that we did when we first came back uh, last year and began recording shows again. And we also brought up the fact that the COVID crisis has really has uh, has really kind of created a crisis of leadership in the country, too. We have seen that. Um, I don't know that we'll talk about that that much in this in this particular conversation, but I think it's something for us to be thinking about and going back to. 
thinking about those those um, those disparities. I just recently heard a, a study. I think just today I was doing some reading in preparation for this show, and one medical journal was saying that one in one thousand African Americans will die from COVID. Um, if we think about the African American community specifically, I didn't look at numbers in other communities, but that is just a striking number to me, Marcus. About mm-hmm. you know of how high this number is. Um, I'm, I've even kind of paid attention to what's going on globally. And just today, uh, we I was looking at what is happening in Brazil and the number of deaths that are taking place there. So there's a lot to talk about here. You all in the audience know that each year at the university, we also host um, a conference each year. Uh, for the past seven years, we've done that. The African-Americans in Western North Carolina and Southern Appalachia Conference. It's been a great project, a project that I didn't see coming. Marcus, you know, we did that as a <laughs> symposium that first year, thought it was going to be a one and done. Mm-hmm. It was so popular and uh, so well received that we have uh, continued to do it each year. We're, we're looking at the possibility of going to a new model as we kind of move forward because it's a lot of work to put the conference together. Last year, we had to do it online as well because we couldn't bring people together. And one of the uh, we one of the focuses of the conference was to talk about um, uh, African-Americans in Western North Carolina and the COVID crisis and just looking not only at Western North Carolina and Southern Appalachia, but looking broadly across the country at African-American communities. And Dr. Rochelle Brandon joined us uh, for that conference last year and did a remarkable presentation that addressed these issues uh, concerning COVID and the African-American community. And so Marcus and I have have the pleasure of having her join us here today because we really thought this was a conversation that we needed to bring to the radio show and to the podcast as well. And not just uh, just for the conference, although it was that that presentation was so well received. But we have her joining us here today, and we're so glad that she could take the time to kind of join us join us here today. So, Dr. Brandon, thank you for taking the time to be here with us. Um, how are you doing? <laughs> I am doing well. Thank you for having me. Well, we're so glad you could take the time. We know that you're busy in your in your practice. I'd just like to give a little background, if I can, on on Dr. Brandon. Um, I had the opportunity to meet her. I, you know, I in the lead up to um, doing the show today, I told her I may I may not um, out her as a relative of Dr. Bill Turner, <laughs> but I'm going to go ahead and do that right now. I've already done it, Dr. Turner. Everybody knows him, uh, Rochelle. Um, it was one of the more popular conversations that. That we've had in the show in the most recent past. And we've talked about how entertaining Bill is and the way he tells the story. Marcus may may dive in here and, and talk about one of those stories that he that he shared with us, right? About the no. mule. Yeah, yeah. And, and this is a story that, that has stuck with me, but he tells the story and he's, he's relating this to how, you know, events like George Floyd's death, for example, were events that just forced America to wake up. But he tells the story of a farmer and a mule. And the mule is sort of being lazy. The mule is being recalcitrant, just won't cooperate. And so the farmer decides to take a two by four and smack the mule over the head, and, you know, as a way of saying, look, it's time to wake up. You know, you have work to do. There, there's stuff to be done. And so that story was offered by, um, by Dr. Turner as a kind of analogy or, or metaphor for how um, you know, George Floyd's public lynching, how other 
um, events of, of involving social and racial upheaval in this country have just forced the country to wake up. They've kind of been a, a collective two by four, smacking the country across <laughs> across the face and saying, look, it's time to do something about these things. <laughs> so, so Rochelle, do those stories sound surprising to you? I'm sure you have a number of your own. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, just a little background about you so that our audience knows, I mean, how, you know, accomplished you are, but Dr. Brandon, the MD, is, um, has a practice in Charlotte, in the Charlotte area, and has practiced there since 1999. She is certified by the American Board of Obstetrics. I knew I was going to butcher this word. I'm always in, in, in gynecology, obstetrics uh, and gynecology, and is a fellow of the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Uh, Dr. Brandon spent her first two years practicing medicine with the National Health Service Corp in a medically underserved uh, area in South Carolina. She then returned to North Carolina and has practiced here since then. So we're so glad to have you here, glad to uh, hear about this uh, tremendous work that you have been doing. And so uh, apart from how you're doing, I think that I would just like to jump in, Dr. Brendan, and just talk about COVID. I mean, you did a wonderful presentation at the conference last year. I want to thank you for taking the time to do that again. Um, it was so well received received by those who attended the conference last year. I think it was very inform informative uh, and instructive for us all. But here we are, you know, uh, that was last October. And so we're, you know, a few months removed from that now. Where do things stand with the COVID crisis right now? If we could just begin there. Hmm. Well, I tell you, we, um, um, it's unfortunately has progressed. Um, we are now currently seeing a surge after the holidays. Uh, we have now a total of 427 plus uh, deaths from COVID. Um, um, it has um, now reached rural communities. And so we're seeing more deaths, uh, more cases in rural communities. And uh, we're struggling with that because we may not have the infrastructure and the expertise in rural co uh, communities. And those communities also struggle to get a proper equipment. Uh, uh, with the expense of it. And so uh, that combination is really uh, tough. And because it's rural, it's hard to, um, you know, you can say one city, but when you're talking about counties and rural counties that are struggling with it and have to transfer patients to diff different uh, tertiary care centers in bigger cities, it's harder. We also have more elderly people in our rural areas and uh, a little bit more isolated. And so it's just hard providing the care in those areas. It is um, progressing. And I think the estimate is that eventually we'll have over 900,000 deaths from COVID as the year progresses. A couple of things that are developing is that we now have a COVID 2.0. Uh, we have a new strain that is more infectious. Thank God it is not more, uh, doesn't have a higher death rate, but um, with regular COVID, you may pass it to 10 or 12 people with this new strain, it's so infectious, and you may pass it to 200 people if you're not using your social distancing, your mask, and things like that. That's very concerning. Uh, so it's spreading rapidly. And this virus mutated in three different areas of the world independently. So it is changing fast, rapidly, and becoming more infectious. Our concern now is that COVID is so prevalent, particularly here in the United States, that unless you've had the vaccine or unless you are a hermit, you're going to eventually get the vac. You're going to get COVID. 
so the next thing that we have is that we now have a vaccine. We have two vaccines uh, and some other ones being developed. Uh, you have to get two shots uh, about 21 days apart, uh, but they are very effective against uh, the COVID virus. They are um, approved for emergency use and the pandemic is considered an emergency use. Uh, and they're our best hope for stopping this pandemic. However, you have to vaccinate almost 70% of the community uh, or 70% of the population in order to really stop COVID in its tracks. Hmm. And of course, as we just heard, there are a lot of people that are very concerned about the vaccine, that are scared of the vaccine, have limited uh, resources or, or um, um, limited ability to navigate the system to get their vaccine. Um, and so we're facing challenges with that. Um, and I agree that this exposes our vulnerabilities as a nation, as a community. It really highlights how we're able to deal with the crisis of this type mm -hmm. uh, and what we need in place and what we don't have in place. So it is uh, quite concerning. We uh, Science, they've done a ph phenomenal job getting vaccines. But now we're looking at the old public health problem of distribution and a cohesive uh, public health system right. to get that vaccine where it's needed. Right. Um, and I think that's what we're seeing in the African-American community for people over 75 years old right. is um, getting the vaccine. That's that's one of the things we struggle with is access to care. And it's the same thing that we're struggling with getting vaccines for our elderly patients and population. going to continue our conversation here on the Waters and Harvest Show after a short break. Please stay with us. So as those of you who are just joining us, we just wanted to remind you, you're listening to the Waters and Harvey show. Marcus and I are talking with Dr. Rochelle Brandon. She is based in Charlotte, and we're discussing the impact of COVID-19, of the COVID-19 pandemic on the African-American community. Uh, Dr. Rochelle uh, Brandon, just thank you for, for that response to that question. And Marcus, I know you have a question that you want to jump in. Yeah, and, 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 and Dr. Brandon, you know, we've, we've as, as you know, we've seen um, the production of, of vaccines in response or as a, as a means of, of trying to vanquish COVID um, in record time, right? Um, and so I'm just curious to hear from you. Um, are you encouraged? Um, are, you, are you optimistic um, about these vaccines given how rapidly produced um, they were and, and, um, and, and how you know, we're seeing multiple uh, pharmaceutical corporations producing these vaccines um, despite the fact that uh, there have been issues with the with the rolling out of the vaccines, especially in the United States. So, so thoughts you have about about the vaccines themselves, their efficacy, and um, you know the rollout process. Okay, so here's my disclaimer. Um, I'm a gynecologist, so I'm not an infectious <laughs> disease expert, um, and I work in the community. And so I can tell you what I see from my perspective. Um, my background is in chemistry. And so I'm really fascinated by the science of it and everything. So I am very much uh, excited about the vaccine. Okay. Um, um, uh, and really think that's our best bet for really slowing this down and slowing down the death rate of, of COVID. Uh, so a couple of things about the vaccine, or at least the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, what they did is COVID is kind of circular and it has this sticky coat around it. You see the pictures of it being circular with these little knobs on it. What they did is um, they, um, uh, in the vaccine, they've got that MRA, that's the protein of that sticky part that gets it into your body. 
And so it teaches your body to fight that off um, um, and to, and to um, uh, uh, fight that off as soon as the body sees it. Really excellent science, excellent vaccine science and everything. Um, um, and so it is like 95% effective, which means out of 100 people, 95 of them aren't going to get COVID at least for as long as a year, maybe longer, uh, but you're not gonna get COVID. Now, when we're talking about the numbers of people that we're, we have getting cases each year or uh, in the United States, even five out of a hundred getting COVID is still a large number. So even after getting the vaccine, you still need to socially distance, wear your mask and everything, uh, because there will be some people that may still get the vaccine. So it's not a hundred percent. Uh, but we're, we don't need it to be 100% to be effective because once you get 70% of the population vaccinated, you get herd immunity. You know, the, it, it's not as prevalent as it is now. It is hopeful that this vaccine will help protect against this new variant uh, also, but we don't know. Uh, that new variant is very new, so we'll see. Uh, but that's really all that we have right now. We've also learned that we can't keep people on lockdown that long. Uh, they just get antsy. They, they, um, uh, you know, we're social creatures. And so it's hard to lock people down and people have, you know, other pressing concerns. They've got to go to the grocery store. They've got to do things. They've got to go to work and all that kind of stuff. They got to take care of people who have COVID. They got to, you know, go see their elderly family members, make sure they're okay. Um, so this is kind of our way to help protect everybody. Everybody, I mean, I, I know a lot of patients, family members, friends are concerned because, wow, this is really fast and I'm not sure about the vaccine. And so what I tell them in my conversation with people is, number one, I am more afraid of COVID than I am of the vaccine. OK, COVID is much more dangerous to you than the vaccine. And this is not believing the politicians or the system. This is believing the science behind that. One thing I think that this obviously brings out is that we have got poor scientists, the average population doesn't understand what vaccines do. And so there's all this um, crazy things out there about, you know, what can happen with a vaccine. Okay. And um, so I worry about the scientific literacy of our population uh, in general, because of, of, of all these myths that circulate about uh, vaccines. So that's one part of it. Mm -hmm. Now, the issue is not the vaccine. The second issue is the distribution of vaccines. As a country, we've got 50 experiments about how to do this. And in some states, you've got, you know, however many counties you have about how to roll this out with um, counties, uh, county health departments. And yes, everybody needs to to their landscape, their population, their city, where their people are and how to do this. But we find, again, that our public health system uh, is, is not prepared to do that on a national level. Um, um, type of thing. And that's a problem. And you, you don't want the national level to impose, you have to do it this way, but we need the national level to, to emphasize and make sure we get supplies and personnel and things like that. And there may be some guidelines about how we need to roll this out uh, rather than going by state by state, county by county level. And that's something we struggle with as a country anyway. Right. Um, you know, um, a strong local government, state government versus a strong federal government and I, my thing is, it doesn't have to be either or. In this kind of situation, you need both. Mm -hmm. um, and so mm -hmm. that's the problem with distribution. That doesn't have anything to do with the vaccine. That's just how our government and how our country runs in this kind of crisis. And that's something we're still figuring out. And it's changing and evolving. Uh, it's getting better uh, over the past month as far as distribution. Um, people really energized to get this 
this vaccine out to people. And so that's going to get better, I think, with time. So, Dr. Brenda, let me ask, you know, in in addressing these issues of uh, it sounds like just of the the methods in rolling out the vaccine, the problems and the weaknesses in our public health system should I mean, should that be the case in 2021? Should we I mean, if we look historically at how the country has responded to, let's say, like the the issue of polio, um, should we be should, you know, how should we be looking at ourselves um, given, given the problems and the struggles that we're having in actually rolling this out in our public health system? And what is the, you know, and what is the answer to that? What do we need to do go, going forward? I, and I hope that question makes sense. And let me, let me just say here, too, that one of the things that I think was really good about um, having you at the conference last year and doing that presentation is because you really are on the ground. I mean, you're working in communities, and, and hopefully we'll talk about that in just a little bit and how your patients and how you're kind of the messaging that you're giving your patients and how they're responding to that. But looking at our public health care uh, system, should we, is this, you know, I'm just hearing that this is just embarrassing where we are, that we shouldn't be here at this point, And why are we here? Like I tell my patients is up, I don't live in the world of should. <laughs> yes, no, we should not be here. This should not be like this. However, this is what we're dealing with. Um, and this is not just healthcare. This is kind of the unique thing of our democracy uh, in the United States and how they deal with things. Um, and um, um, it has its benefits in that you may run 50 different experiments on healthcare delivery. It may have its disadvantages in that, you know, some of these 50 states may not get it well, not do it well, or may not prioritize it as, it's, as it should be. Um, and um, I think one of the problems that we've had is that um, the science and the epidemic has been politicized and um, really should be an issue of science and medicine um, type of thing. And so um, um, when we got politics in it, then it is based on ideas and beliefs. Uh, whereas in healthcare, we're running with data, okay? Um, uh, we're looking at what we do in hospital based on the data and the number of cases um, type of thing. So we're looking at it that way, whereas some people are looking at it politically uh, mm. when we, we do it that way. And that's unique to some to our system. Um, it is um, a hindrance in some cases. It can be a benefit in other cases, um, um, but it definitely uh, has caused us to struggle to have a unified response. Think about it. We lose, we lose people. It's almost like having a 9-11 every, every week or a 9-11 every month. You know, if we went to war and lost 427 people, we would be up in arms, you know, and we'd all be on the same page type of thing. Um, but it's the virus and it's science and we don't quite understand it. And it's a vaccine and I'm scared of vaccines and I don't know. And we don't understand it. And so we don't have a unified response to this um, type of thing. So that may change with the uh, new administration. It is changing. But how do we handle this now? Let me tell you, there are epidemiologists, there are public health officials that have written books on this. We have the information and the data about how we should handle a pandemic. And this is not the first pandemic we've dealt with. My father talks about polio, uh, the polio vaccine, and he complains. He says, you know, 
good grief, even during the polio vaccine, we could still go to church. <laughs> um, but we've had this before. This, in the, in the public health standpoint, this is not a surprise. It wasn't if we would have a pandemic, but when. And so we have protocols in place that were just torn apart um, um, in the past administration. We've had things in place about how you, how you deal with a pandemic, how you trace cases, um, how you really pull out the stops to keep it from spreading. Once it's out there like it is now, we're going to have a tough time putting it back in the box. And the only way we've got right now is vaccines. Um, and so I really feel for the current administration because it's going to be a tough uphill battle. Um, and so we all need to be on the same page and working toward the same direction. Unfortunately, because so many people have died and so many people have gotten it, I think a lot of people on all spectrums of where they think politically have said, oh, my gosh. This is a problem. Now I know somebody who's out of COVID and this is a problem and we need to do something about it. Um, and I think we finally slowly are getting on, on the, the, um, the wheel with that. Uh, there are other countries in the world that are less well off than we are who are doing a better job of taking care of the population. And they have a better public health system uh, from the ground up all the way down to the ground. And they're better at doing that than we are. Marcus, there, there, there's that unity of purpose. Yeah, I think it comes in there again. That's right. And, yeah. and Dr. Brandon, you know, I'm, I'm, I, the point you make about the importance of, of paying attention to scientific data is, is just such an important one. And I also think, Dr. Brandon, about all of the talk that has been going on really since um, the lockdown began, I would say, um, what was this, um, around uh, February, March of last year about well when are we going to return to normalcy or or or, or normal life what what whatever that is um but i think also about a point that, that we made earlier in the show about the about how covid has really forced us to confront the uh the sort of racial fault lines that are so evident in the disparities uh regarding uh the access that for, for example the african american community has to uh to covid testing to the vaccine etc and you know I, I think about statistics like for example on average african americans are younger than whites than white americans and yet the, the African-American mortality rate is something like um, a, a bit over three and a half uh, times more that than, than that of of their white counterparts. And so, you know, with 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 that disparity and other and other racialized uh, health disparities in mind, Dr. Brandon, do you think that normalcy really should even be a part of the conversation right now <laughs> about about covid or or do we need to save some room to, to have that discussion precisely because as you was as you were as you mentioned earlier uh people are people are naturally social creatures they want they want to feel as if you know at some point in the near future they'll be able to to, to go out to a, a coffee shop you know go hang out with friends go to a party go check on relatives uh etc so so thoughts on on this whole question of of, of normalcy dr brandon Okay, so several things. We need to give up about normalcy. Do we want to go back to being so naive and not seeing clearly these fault lines? And these fault lines are, are they're numerous. I mean, there is um, the fault line between the African-American community and testing that wasn't rolled out to us to test for the vaccine. Um, uh, certain people were getting, getting tested for COVID earlier. There were African-American people who were begging for the test or sick or begging for their relatives that didn't get tested, that should have gotten tested, dealing with that um, access and not even that, just kind of almost denial of care, or poor quality of care that you deal with. We also have fault lines as far as rural versus urban, fault lines of our elderly 
and how we get care to our elderly um, uh, in this technological society where you can go online and get your COVID vaccine schedule. If you're 75 years old and can a little bit forgetful, you're not going to be able to get into that very easily. Uh, or if you're not able to to um, get into the digital types of things, you may be dependent on relatives get doing that for you um, uh, type of thing. That's a technology uh, fault line and things like that. We have those fault lines. No, we need to let go of this idea that we're going to go back to normal because normal was a problem where we ignore the possibility of a pandemic. We all have these signs all over the place about the inequity that we have, and we were okay to ignore it. You know, or or uh, be very not proactive about fixing it. But now we're all in this together. I mean, um, um, African Americans, workers, wealthy people. I mean, this this virus doesn't care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and the way that we fix it is by being in this together, um, um, unity of purpose. Um, but no, it's not going to go back to normal. I think there's going to be some things that are going to change regarding working, not going to work when you're sick. Um, There's going to have to be some changes regarding protecting people's jobs when there's a pandemic or a big national uh, infection going on, paid sick leave. One of the reasons we have such problems is that people go to work sick because they cannot afford to miss work um, type of thing. Uh, There are children that education is their child care system. And so when you shut that down, then what happens to women and uh, what happens to families trying to educate their children still work? And having to be responsible for educating their children, as well as also safe childcare and things like that. This this really should be seen in 2020. All of the things that we have to deal with and things that we need to fix. And so it being going back to normal, I, I don't think that should be what we should do. I think this is a stepping ground to saying, how do we go from here? Um, and this is going to, and I talked about ripples uh, from COVID. And this is going to pro, uh, um, ripple into the future. Um, uh, what is happening with our elderly, what's happening with our children in education, what's happening with special needs populations and things like that. Um, This is the time that we're going to have to change how we do some things. Um, And um, that's hard. And and I think that's also one of the kickbacks you see is that people are very scared of change um, type of thing. They want to put the the blinders back on and Mm -hmm. come back and not have to worry about anything. And I don't think that's going to happen. Um, there are a couple of things, and this may be off time. I tell my patients, if you want things to go back that you don't have to wear a mask in public and the children back in school, then you need to be first in line for the vaccine. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tell people, if you distrust the medical system and don't think they're going to take good care of you, you need to take the vaccine. Because the last thing you want to be is in the hospital or in the medical system, very deathly ill. Uh, if you don't have that distrust, then trust the science and get the vaccine and try your best not to get mm-hmm. COVID, not to be in the system. And then, you know, we're going to have to hold the system accountable for the care. It doesn't matter whether you're rural or urban or black, white, elderly, what have you. Um, we're still responsible for taking care of you um, um, type of thing. And so we're going to have to call out those injustices and things like that. Uh, and we're going to have to uh, tailor make it to the community that you're dealing with. Uh, you can get elderly 75-year-old uh, Caucasian people vaccinated, but we're not in the, our community. That may not be that the uh, person doesn't want it. It may be an issue of transportation, getting it mm. scheduled and things like that. Um, mm. And so I wouldn't be quick to assume that they don't want it. And there may be some distrust. There may be some mobility issues. And so there are all kinds of ways that we can get it to people in a variety of ways. You can't just do one thing uh, to make sure they get that information in that vaccine. 
Yeah, and I, I I hear you, Dr. Brandon, and I'm 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 thinking um I'm thinking though about this whole question of normalcy and the possibility that this concern among the American populace, the Black community included, um about returning to normalcy may be tied to the impact that that COVID has had upon people's mental health. And so I'm just wondering um how 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 do we how might we speak to that? Uh, because it really does seem to me that you know a return to normalcy um putting on the blinders, as you put it, and not really dealing squarely with the reality that is COVID-19, um, again, might be reflective of some deeper mental health, health issues that have arisen or perhaps been exacerbated, right, by by the pandemic. So is, is, are, are there ways to sort of speak, and, and I know that you're a gynecologist, but but, uh, but are there ways to, to, to speak to that likelihood, to that to that reality of, of, of the mental health impact? Um, in a way that still challenges people to understand that, look, there is no sort of returning to the normal. This is the new normal. And we have to deal with a new reality that is here to stay for some time. The mental health challenges and the stresses that we deal with now, I'm a gynecologist, but it's a lot of psychology and stuff, a lot of women's health. And uh, in 2019, I had said that um, women were under too much stress. We were doing too much um, and we were breaking under the stress um, that um, we're, we're carrying stress from social situations and political situations and things that that uh, we don't have much control over. Um, and uh, it was very stressful. And I thought that this is going to have to change. And then came 2020. And oh, my gosh, uh, we are even under more stress Um there are more tears flowing in my office just for the for the stress. And I try to tell people that it's not just them, that everybody's experiencing high levels of stress, particularly African-American women, and particularly with all of the responsibilities that women have. Now, and I'm not saying other populations don't have that. It's just I, I take care of women um, type of thing. But I think that we're all under stress. Um, I also talked in, in the uh, talk in October that we're all grieving because we know more people who died of COVID and we're grieving, we're stressed. We don't have access because of COVID and social distancing of the normal social support structures that we have when we lose somebody. Um, so you grieve by yourself and that's particularly a problem for our elderly. You grieve by yourself. You don't have the homecoming ceremony that you usually have when you, your relatives pass away. And so, um, even if they don't die of COVID, because there are restrictions as far as visitation in the hospital, you feel distance from your loved one and feel that they've died alone. Or because of COVID, you can't have the funeral and the church service that you usually do, and people are grieving. And so I send a lot of people for counseling. The problem is right now, particularly in the Black community, for socially appropriate counseling, we're running out of counselors. In fact, I used to have a handful of about five counselors I could refer people to, and now only one is still taking taking new patients. Um, and so uh, people are a lot better about accepting needing counseling and everything. But in this time of disruption, of loss of normalcy, um, um, uh, distance from family and support people, worry about the children, the grandparents, uh, are my children getting educated enough? about will I have a job next week, worried about am I going to catch COVID from the children I take care of at school, the uh, patients I take care of in the hospital, uh, cleaning up after sick, sick people, um, you know, or um, um, uh, is my family member going to bring COVID to me and I have um, 
special illnesses and things, it's really um, tough. And so, yes, I think that we had a mental health issue and an issue with stress before COVID hit. And it has definitely gotten worse. And this isn't sustainable. Now, mm-hmm. we have people waiting for placement in mental health institutions because the mental health institutions, they don't have beds. And mm-hmm. so not only do we have hospitals who have um, COVID patients, but they have people waiting for placement to get the psychiatric care that they need. Mm-hmm. So the mental health system is buckling under this also. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and it also will unmask uh, mental health problems that you have. Sitting at home alone for somebody who has mental health issues is a problem. Having, uh, if you're a customer service rep and people are fussing at you all day long about how they're not satisfied by their service, at work, that's one thing, but now you're working from home and that's in your home. Mm-hmm. It's hard to separate from that. Yes, we're in a difficult situation. I tell people, if you have any counseling background or anything like that, if you're not seeing patients, please hang up your your plaque and please see some people. You don't Mm -hmm. have to see everybody, but we're in desperate need of counselors, um, um, particularly in our community, uh, that we need need that um, right now. Um, We may not be able to cure it, but we've got to come to a place where we can function Mm-hmm. Um, uh, without it uh, impacting us mentally negatively and then men- um, um, uh, with our bodies, mm-hmm. uh, high blood pressure and out of control and, and that type of thing. So we have a lot of work to do. We had a lot of work to do before COVID hit. COVID just really put a very fine microscope on, on all the fractured places of our society. going to take a short break here on the Waters and Harvey show, but we'll be back in just a moment. Thanks for joining us. Well, again, we want to remind you that you're listening to the Waters and Harvey show. Marcus and I are talking with Dr. Rochelle Brandon. Uh, she's based in Charlotte and we'll be discussing and we're discussing the impact of COVID-19, as you can hear, especially on the African-American community. And so, <laughs> Rochelle, I mean, this is um, it's like this conversation is letting me making me realize once again of just how massive this problem is and how deep the problems um, run um, as we try to confront this as a community and as a nation. I'm wondering, how are your, how are your patients responding to the messages that you're giving them? Are, are they responding in a way that you would say is, is uh, positive, um, especially about going and getting the vaccine? Or are you seeing still some resistance among your own patients with, with regard to this? Actually, um, so a couple of things. I, we, we talk a lot about what we can fix and what we can't fix. We go through a lot of tissue and everything because for a lot of women, uh, or at least for a lot of my patients, um, it's a safe place to to kind of vent, uh, whereas they can't do it at home with the kids or at work or things like that. And so it's a safe place to see what's going on with her, you know, in general. And, um, you know, we have tears and we talk about loss and a family member who died this year and that type of thing. Uh, and people are more and more open to counseling um, because they've just they just aren't functioning very well. And so um, um, they're more open to that type of thing. So we talk about um, uh, those um, types of things quite a bit. And people are very much open to it because I think they've hit a, a desperate point where they're just not uh, coping well with this. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as uh, COVID, uh, generally, my patients are very cautious and they wear their masks, um, those types of things and say they're being compliant. 
Um, but they asked me about the vaccine and I tell them about the vaccine. In fact, um, there's a patient today. She said, well, what do you think about this vaccine? I thought, I got my second shot Tuesday. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so, you know, that is the only way that we're going to have, we're going to be able to control it. And if you want to get back to some, some semblance of being able to go out and everything, we need to do the vaccine. Mm -hmm. And the patients have detailed questions um, um, for me about this. But I go through this conversation a lot every year because I encourage all my patients to take the flu shot. Mm -hmm. Uh, the flu vaccine, a lot of them don't. And I tell them the reasons why I do that mm -hmm. uh, and why I recommend that they do that, particularly for women, because if you're thinking about getting pregnant, I strongly recommend that you get the vaccine prior to pregnancy. Right. You can mm -hmm. get the vaccine during pregnancy. That's that's a choice you have um, type of thing. No one's doing studies on pregnant women or pregnant mm -hmm. people. Um, but um, uh, pregnant women get deathly ill from COVID. Mm -hmm. They're not more likely to die than anybody else, but they're more likely to get um, get deathly ill. And until we have some data about five years to make sure these babies that are prenatal exposed to COVID are walking, talking, growing, heads growing okay, they can mm -hmm. hear, they can do that stuff. Until we know that that hasn't caused any kind of developmental delay or problem, then I recommend avoiding COVID during pregnancy. And the way to do that is get your vaccine prior to pregnancy um, um, type of thing to give you some added protection. Um, and that's a personal choice. They'll discuss it with their, their doctor. They don't have to get it. But um, I have that conversation a lot because I'm taking care of women and uh, thinking about a vaccine prior to getting pregnant to make sure we have a healthy pregnancy and a healthy mom and a baby afterwards. Right. Um, that's a big concern. Well, Rochelle, you know, I'm imagining, um, you know, that it, we've heard it in the classroom that um, there was a study that was done about, you know, students and especially African-American or minority students and their ability to finish uh, even to, through high school, that if they have one teacher that looks like them during their educational career, they're more likely to successfully complete their education um, and graduate. So I'm imagining that it's helpful to your patients to have someone who's talking to them who looks like them and is you know and has a shared experience. So I'm wondering, from your perspective, are we doing enough as a nation to ensure uh, to to ensure and support the development of more African-American medical professionals? We are seeing a change in general. We are getting more diverse and more female in the medical profession, okay, just in general. So I think that we're doing a lot. Now, uh, where those doctors choose to practice may vary. And so uh, from, person, uh, from person to person, we still have shortages in some areas. So this is my point to patients and to colleagues. Our goal is to have a, a diverse representation of, of physicians and caregivers and nurses so that at some level, patients can, con can connect with their caregiver uh, or who has some cultural competency to know where the patient's coming from, okay? Uh, now, I have a diverse population of patients, not just African-American, but also people from um, uh, Southeast Asia, uh, Hispanic population. Uh, I have a lot of uh, white students from the university here and things like that. I have a diverse population and I hope and I like that we connect on various levels, but you wanna have a diversity of people, okay? Uh, to serve the public so people have a choice and go and see who they have a rapport with and who they feel cares about them, okay? Now, 
there are patients that we don't have a rapport and I'm not shy about saying, you know, you know, I may not be the doctor for you. Mm -hmm. You know, there may be somebody else that you have a rapport because the quality of your care depends on the communication and that rapport that you have with your physician. Okay. And sometimes it's not that the physician doesn't care about you. There's not a rapport there. And Mm -hmm. so the physician may be offering you the standard of care and everything that you need, but there's not a rapport or feeling that you're cared about. And I have a lot of patients that come to me and say, you know, this is what they said. I don't trust it. And I, we listen and we talk and say, and I'll go through and kind of teach them about the medical problem. But I'll also say, what your physician in the past offered is standard and some mm-hmm. things that can offer. It. And they say, well, I just feel much better with you. And that's a rapport issue, not a uh, a care issue. Mm-hmm. And so when we look at disparities in the African-American community or other communities, Hispanic communities, people of color, that type of thing, uh, having somebody there that can give you that rapport uh, is a lot better. You'll get better compliance with medication. Uh, You'll understand and feel more comfortable with your care. So a lot of my colleagues are providing excellent care, but the rapport isn't there. The language base isn't there. Uh, You don't understand the community and and that type of thing. And so they don't get as much care. Uh, uh, or the care isn't isn't comprehensive. And so that's something that we need to address. It's just far as as diversity of of caregivers Mm -hmm. um, um, type of thing. So, Marcus, I'm hearing something that connects up with the way we started this show out and then your your comments about relationships. And uh, we've been having these conversations in other shows about relationships. And what I'm hearing from Dr. Brandon here, even with how, you know, patients respond to their doctors, that relationships uh, and having that rapport is really key here. So I don't know if that was if you were connecting those dots too, Marcus, but I couldn't help but think about them. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I, I think it really speaks to the point of, you know, uh, story being being a, a method of connection, even within the context of healthcare, right? Um, and, and I think that the issue of rapport and the way that Dr. Brandon attends to it, it really speaks to the importance of attending to the whole person. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, of, of a more holistic approach mm-hmm. to healthcare rather than a strictly clinical approach or a strictly illness based approach. So I agree, brother. Yeah. So, Marcus, here we are. We're coming down to the end of the show, but I am so appreciative to uh, of Dr. Brandon for jo- joining us today. And again, I just have to emphasize of just how big in this conversation, yeah. how big this issue is and how big this problem is. And I I hope that we can we can have a further conversation, not only with her, but talk about this issue of unity of purpose um, in, in how we move through this and how we look as a community, as a state, as a nation, um, when we come out the other side of this and what, whatever that looks like, we're not going to be the same. And you can clearly hear that from what she's saying. So as you all in the audience think about this, you know, one of the things we didn't get a chance to ask Dr. Brandon here uh, this time, which was asked of her at the conference, is how she's taking care of herself as she's doing this work, because that's very important. So we we really want to wish her well as she continues to do this work. But Marcus, I'm thinking about the the framing questions that we've had in all of these conversations. We've raised it again at the beginning of the show. Who are we? Who do we want to be? And and is there a we, you know, and should Mm -hmm. there be as as we kind of move forward? And 
um, I, I heard recently that, you know, America as a nation was born out of an idea. Uh, former mayor of New Orleans, Mitch Landrieu, made this point in a recent presentation he gave. And it raised the question for me, Marcus, of what is that idea? Does it still have relevance for us today and should it? And these are things that I think that we can encourage you all in the audience to be thinking about, especially as we continue to have these conversations around civic engagement. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I think you know, a, a lot of this hinges on this question of kind of going back to, to Dr. Brandon's point about dealing with what is rather than what should be. Are we willing to deal with what is, what COVID is, mm-hmm. and um, and how, you know, for example, um, how, uh, you know, the, the idea upon which or the ideals upon which the country was founded on may help us perhaps deal with what is and then begin to look at what should be. Right. Well, once again, Marcus and I want to thank you all for joining us again to, for spending this time with us. We're so glad to have you all in the audience. And we want to remember to remind you again, as we kind of end this show and conclude this show, that the Waters and Harvey show is produced at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina. And you can listen to our podcast on BPR.org, the BPR and NPR One mobile apps and on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. And we continue to enjoy hearing from you all uh, from Facebook and from Twitter. And you know, you can follow us there. So we will look forward to, to engaging you all in conversation again. And we want to just take this moment to thank Dr. Brandon again for taking this time to join us on the show today. Yes. Thanks so much, Dr. Brandon. Thank you for having me. All right. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care.